Sabir, Dr. Sabrina Brennan, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. No, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. So where are you from? Where did you grow up? Oh, I'm from Dublin. I grew up in uh, what is often referred to as the leafy suburb of Clontarf um, and lived there and my childhood there. It's a lovely area and had my childhood there and then lived there until uh, 18 months ago when we sold up and moved to the country, which I absolutely adore. Lovely. Um, and how would you describe your childhood? Um, gosh, probably um, typical of people my vintage. Uh, it was probably quite strict um, and probably very Catholic in, you know, in that everything was Catholic in Ireland when I was growing up. Um, very rigid rules that you, uh, you know, were expected to conform to and to conform to expectations. Um, that makes it sound awful. It, it was fine, but it was quite uh, rigid and uh, limiting, which was quite normal for the time when I grew up. I uh, started uh, drama at the age of eight. I can mm. really remember that. I can remember the day the teacher came into the class and they bundled a few classes in together. So I remember standing around the back of the classrooms and we used to have huge classrooms back then, about 52 kids in my class, I think. Yeah. And uh, this teacher came in, she was young and uh, I remember she had blonde hair. I can still see her. Absolutely. She was, she had boots to her knees and a kind of a mini skirt on and she was just so different to all the teachers in the school. And she came in and she spoke about this thing called drama which was acting, uh, I suppose. And uh, she was going to be starting classes after school. Now that might not sound novel to anybody listening now, but those kind of things did not exist. They're really just, you might've had the, the potential to do maybe a French class after school, uh, but there was no kind of after school activities. Uh, and I just thought, oh my God, this sounds really exciting. And I ran all the way home and I asked, please, 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 could I do these classes? So um, uh, my mum said yes, and um, I did them. And I remember actually really being the only one who was doing them, who was absolutely throwing myself full into everything. You know, these were the days of pretend you're a tree. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and whereas the others were looking at each other and kind of going, what is this about? And oh, I don't really want to do this. And I just absolutely loved it. So from that, actually, from those after school classes, the teacher said to my mum, you know, um, Sabina kind of has a real talent for this, would you consider she, uh, you know, letting her do exams? So you then did sort of speech and drama. So essentially, I studied speech and drama mm. uh, right up until I left school, did all my exams uh, with the Guildhall School of Speech and Drama uh, and uh, did a lot of. Now, I didn't do like stage performing. I literally did it in that sort of more disciplined way of exams and fashion, which are kind of, you know, competitions where there'd be uh, poetry competitions or solo drama competitions or duo drama competitions, you know. Mm. So that kind of, I did all that sort of stuff. Uh, but it wasn't considered something that you would do as a profession. Mm. And my father was quite old. He was in his 40s, well, 42 when I was born. So he had, um, he kind of had that, uh, 
perspective that acting was very close to the oldest profession in the world. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, well, you see, it, it, it was really, you know, I mm. mean, uh, so, um, yeah, so I, I, I took a job in a life insurance company. In fact, the life insurance company my father worked for, because that was his biggest ambition, was that one of his children would work in the same company that he did. And it wasn't a company he owned or anything, but that was kind of the height of ambition, you know, mm. uh, came from a family that didn't go to university. And a lot of people back then didn't go to university, particularly women, mm. girls. Uh, and spent 15 years in a job I hated <laughs> and then uh, uh, had, had kids uh, in my 20s and said right well I am not going to raise them to end up doing something like this I want to raise them to find something that they absolutely love and then find a way make to make a, a living doing it and I kind mm. of went well kids learn by example and I'm not doing it mm. so uh, I at night, I did. Uh, I completed. I, I completed a diploma with the Guildhall uh, to become a drama teacher, mm. and gave up my job, set up a little drama school, and then kind of tried to get work as an actor, which I did, and then became an actor for whatever 10, 12 years. I think I worked as an actor before have then you, finally going to university. Have you ever come across um, from a scientific perspective? anything to do with the experience of acting, um, studying acting and cognition? That's a really interesting, uh, that's a really interesting question. I've actually never explored it. It's the first thing I'm going to do now when I get off this. Well, I have another podcast interview after that. I will actually. Um, it's, I haven't sort of empirically or academically looked at it. But that's actually a fascinating question. Um, for me, it is uh, relates to actually a lot of the work I do now that I think of it. Um, obviously, I don't. I, I mean, it does relate in the sense that I give a lot of talks, and so that's performing and having been an actor and all that um, is relevant. And rather interestingly, when I actually did go to university and do my exams. Uh, it helped immensely because I used to be in the soap opera and you have five episodes a week and you have to learn off tons of scripts. So when mm. I went to university, my brain was primed mm. uh, and I found it really easy. You know, I'd write essays, could learn them off and then spew them out in the exam. So because mm. um, I do think part of academic part of degrees are about how good your memory is. And, mm. and mine was primed from acting. But actually, the kind of question that you're really asking, I think, and the one that's really been thought provoking for me now is that it actually shows the power of uh, the, the brain, the power of our thinking. Because for me, uh, acting is always about being. That's, that's when you're a good actor. You're fully in the moment. Uh, and, and we'd all have good days and bad days as an actor, you know? And it's the one thing that I wasn't mad about in soap. You know, good enough was good enough. Oh, yeah, no, that's fine. You kind of go, no, hold on a second. I really don't think I did that. Now, I wouldn't be awkward about it, and it wasn't very often, but I always felt that if you could hear yourself delivering your lines, that wasn't good, mm -hmm. you know, because you weren't in the moment. You were sort of observing yourself, whereas if you actually were in the moment, you actually really feel, you genuinely feel everything. Um, and that shows the power of, 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 of thought and the, how much control in a way you have. we do have over our emotions and our experiences and our perceptions of the world. Because if I can 
I'm really glad you brought this up, actually. This is really interesting way. It's something I might use to explain things. If I so say my role um in, in Fair City, which was the soap opera I was in, um towards the end, I was married to an abusive husband, and you know, the sort of last few scenes, last few weeks before I exited were were very traumatic scenes and involved a lot of arguing and a lot of crying and uh, eventually, you know, being beaten to death or strangled to death. Um, and I would come home from work in that frame of mind and actually be really irritable, be really genuinely exhausted. And I cannot talk. It's not that I confuse my husband with my husband on set, mm. but my body and my brain were completely confused they had absolutely lived every moment of that you know I was not putting anything on I was living through it and I think that's very empowering actually in a way that if you want to take that into real life that we can I firmly believe that you know um we make up stories we have a narrative that narrative that we have about our life is is created by our brain from past experiences. And some of those experiences can be simply the opinion of others, something that was said to you when you were four years of age. Mm -hmm. do, do you know what I mean? And, and we never, we rarely stop to think, hold on, is that story of me? Is that actually accurate? And actually what bits don't I like? And actually, oh, that was just somebody's opinion. Is it actually true? Is it valid? Do I want it to be? And, and so we can change our own narratives. And I suppose that's what acting is. You change your narrative and become somebody else. And if you're a good actor and, and any good actors do that, they become somebody else. And I don't believe you have to do that like some actors become that person for six months while they're filming a movie. I don't believe you actually have to do that, but you can become it in the moment. Um, and it carries on. And I think that's very, um, a very powerful as a message I'm always kind of trying to get through to people is we do have choice and, mm. and we can change particular narratives if they are uh, not healthy or not helpful or not helping us get towards our goals. You know, it's not about not being in touch with reality, but it is about, um, you know, checking that narrative that you're you have assimilated and that your brain has just made up you know it has just said oh that person said this oh that happened that happened. this is who I am and we can change that um which I think is really apparent gosh I'm gonna look into that now see if there's any more uh, uh research uh in and around that uh it's a fascinating way to look at it and also if you're fully immersed you you're you're going through a flow state right yes yes I think so um I think so. Although you have to have a certain element with acting, it's probably it's probably a bit different from that flow state that 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 you're talking about, which is when you're doing something that you love or that totally engages you. Uh, you don't notice time passing. People can call you and you don't hear them. You miss meal times, which is not necessarily good, but it is a real state of flow. You're so immersed and at one with uh with what you're doing that actually in the brain we see a dampening down of the parts of the brain or the activity normally associated with what we call self-referential processing mm -hmm. which is you know being aware of the self so i think acting is a little bit different uh, uh in that 
you are in the moment in regard to, you know, I'm feeling the experience, but you actually do have to have a certain metacognition and meta-awareness because mm. while you're doing that, say in soap, you have three cameras, do you know? And one is for your close-up, one is the wide, and, and one is for cross-conversations or whatever. So you mm. have to be aware of, I have to get up now and walk over to there and I must angle myself slightly. So it would not be completely in the state of flow. It, mm. it would be definitely connection with, with real emotions, but also uh, being aware. Yeah. Um, okay. So I want to chat about you. You released a book recently called The Brain Gym with 40 fantastic little exercises. Would we call it a book or would we call it a cross between a book and a board game? How would you describe I The Brain Gym? I call it a brain gym in a box. <laughs> it's literally just a box with a deck of cards. And I suppose the idea is, uh, you know, um, I've written a couple of books and I'm, I suppose I'm really on a mission to get everybody thinking about their brain health as routinely as they brush their teeth. Mm. Um, and not everybody reads books. Books aren't for everyone. Um, and I would like to say it was my idea to do a brain gym in a box, but it wasn't a popular publisher approached my um, my literary agent and asked, would I do it? And I had no hesitation. Absolutely. Yes. Now they would do actually the company that publishes uh, it, uh, uh, Lawrence King Publishing. They um, they do make games and board games and they do a lot of these in a box things and originally I think they sort of started out with things like I don't know if your listeners would be familiar with but like tarot cards or angel cards you know which are kind of uh you know little quotations and that sort of thing and in re more recent years they've moved into things like you know there's clouds in a box and it's mm. information about clouds or trees in a box or whatever so when they came with the idea of doing something about brain health in a box uh i just thought it was brilliant so essentially you know you just pick a card a day and on the back is a tip for something that you can do that's good for your brain health and then a paragraph explaining the neuroscience behind why it's good for your brain health and they're beautifully illustrated well I think they're beautifully illustrated by um, an award-winning illustrator called Andy Goodman and actually yeah. the the images themselves in a way are a little bit of a a, a brain uh, teaser because you kind of figure out what what does this image have to do with what's written on the back um yeah no i'm very excited uh, uh about them uh and they're kind of fun i found it fascinating. a great gift <laughs> yeah yeah well well let's have a look at it it's right uh it's right it's right here so it's a little little box with with a little book at the top and then you got your 40 little cards here right and there's one of the illustrations and on the back there's all the there's all the detail and the neuroscience stuff um okay so I want to talk about some of the concepts and throw some quotes at you from the book, which I found fascinating. And I think people will will also find fascinating. What now, are folks, the... Bear in mind, I've just written another book in between this. So my brain is on a completely different, different spectrum. Yeah. yeah. No, but hopefully I'll remember what I wrote. Ah, no, I'm, 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 I'm joking. Go ahead. What... So what are firstly, what are, what are the key me uh, mechanisms or principles behind neuroplasticity? Well, neuroplasticity is, is really, it's a fundamental feature of the human brain. Mm. Um, it's not exclusive to the human brain. You know, other brains are, are, are plastic, but the human brain appears to excel at it. 
Now, I want to say for me, the use of the word like neuroplasticity is, is, is really just a fancy word that explains the brain's capacity to change with learning. Mm. And so they call that plastic. And that just doesn't apply in uh, neuroplasticity. It happens in other aspects of the brain. But I find it a rather confusing word because if I think of plastic, I tend to think of credit card plastic. And that's not the kind of plastic it's referring to, really. It, it really is exper- referring to the brain's flexibility and its ability to adapt uh, and in the face of change and in the face of challenge. And actually, it is fundamental uh, to resilience, but also fundamental to our evolution, you know, that we're constantly able to uh, adapt. And essentially, there's kind of three, three main times that neuroplasticity occurs the first time is uh at birth when we're born you know when you think about other mammals we're born as very very uh with a very immature brain um you know you look at a foal or a baby giraffe being born and they're walking within hours of birth it takes our babies you know a year or more sometimes a little less uh to walk so The brain is plastic, meaning that it can grow new connections and brain cells. And that's what learning is. That's why it's really important if you have a baby to offer them stimulation and a variety of interactions uh, because uh, a baby is born with actually an excess and abundance of neurons. uh, And the point being during learning, learning how to walk, learning how to talk, having interactions, connections are formed. Through, through which uh, electrical and chemical signals pass. That's how the brain kind of communicates and works. So any brain cells that aren't used are eventually actually um, pruned out. Mm. So, you know, that early period is really, really important to harness that neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity actually from a developmental point of view then is also um, particularly enhanced uh, during the second period of development in humans, and that occurs from puberty to about the age of 24. The brain has an enhanced ability to learn and grow new connections. And actually that is why, you know, that period of time is a very important time mm. uh, for, for learning, for academic. But by le- I wish there was another word for learning because we all just tend to associate it with school and, and that sort of thing. But the learning I'm talking about is the in the broadest, broadest sense. Every time you walk into a room and you're opening a door for the first time, you're learning how much pressure to put on that door. So it's that, you know, learning how to interact with the world so that is enhanced in teen years that the the flip side of that is of course uh, not all learning is adaptive Uh, so your brain can also be plastic and and very you know learn very easily maladapted adaptive Mm. ways and that's a fundamental kind of um, during those teenage years where we can become vulnerable to mental health issues and maladaptive ways of coping with stress and actually also leading to, um, you know, using alcohol or drugs or whatever to cope with, you know, emotions or various situations. Mm-hmm. Then um, neuroplasticity is pretty incredible in the face of brain in- injury. And so basically say, for example, if someone has a stroke, and an area of the brain is damaged, the cells are obliterated, they can't grow again. Um, but the, the, the brain has the capacity to grow new connections. And actually that's what 
occupational therapists and physiotherapists are trying to harness after somebody has a brain injury of whatever kind. They are trying to harness neuroplasticity to train an, an adjacent, usually an adjacent part of the brain to learn the activity of the part of the brain that was damaged. Mm. Um, and uh, then the other time is basically anything, anytime something new is learned or enhanced. And that is the fundamental thing about neuroplastics, about brain health, is you want as many brain cells and as many brain connections as possible. So a lot of the activities that you need to engage in for a he healthy brain aim to harness neuroplasticity. Um, so if I go to that example of someone who had, had a stroke, two people can have a stroke and the degree of disability or the impact of that stroke um, can differ, differ amazingly. One person can be quite uh, disabled and lose function and another person can bounce back quite quickly, be resilient. And uh, that may well be to do with the fact that they have been harnessing neuroplasticity by learning how to do new things. When, when you're engaging in an activity, really roughly speaking, you know, different functions happen in different parts of the brain. Now that's an oversimplification because no part of the brain works in isolation, but roughly speaking, you know, uh, you have your language center, your motor center, your visual centers, etc. cetera. Um, now, if you're engaging in any particular activity, there's limited amount of resources. <clears throat> and so if you push yourself beyond your comfort zone, if you like on a game, if you're playing a PlayStation game, you want to get to the next level, you've got to really push and push up. And what actually happens in that process when you're doing that, when you're pushing yourself, whether it's learning a musical instrument and pushing yourself to the next level, it's hard, it's challenging. And the area of the brain that you're working may not have enough resources in that moment to do that. And so begins to recruit other areas of the brain to help out. Other areas can be adjacent to it or they can be distal, they can be far away. But I hope you see where I'm going then. If you've been doing that all your life and you then have a stroke, mm. the areas of your brain adjacent to your brain that's been damaged, if you've been exercising it and challenging it, may already know how to take over that part of the brain. And, and so in a way you've built this resilience. I think it's really exciting um, it, it, to it, understand. Yeah, um, in relation to physical exercise, Selena, um, you know in the brain, Jim, that opioids and endocannabinoids are released during physical activity. How does physical exercise impact brain health and cognition? And are there particular forms of exercise that are especially beneficial? For the brain right there's a lot in there um yep. so yeah physical exercise ultimately makes us feel good you know at the time when we're doing it it may not feel like that but you know you do get this buzz this high afterwards right so you have the release of certain brain chemicals that make you feel good and you know given that uh, things like depression um are uh, and uh, leading a sedentary lifestyle uh they're not good for your brain so physical mm. exercise is very good for your brain it's good for your brain also because it builds a um healthy cardiovascular system okay now that's critical for brain health because your brain health 
depends on your cardiovascular system, your heart and uh, your blood supply to give it the oxygen and nutrients that it uh, needs to function well. And then there's another way uh, that brain health, that physical activity um, impacts on brain health. And that is uh, it releases a, a chemical um, called uh, brain derived neurotrophic factor. And that uh, NDMF, which I said brain, BDNF, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, BDNF, uh, and I call it um, uh, miracle grow uh, for the brain, really, because what it does is when that chemical is released, it literally it's like a fertilizer. It makes it easier for neuroplasticity to occur. It makes it easier to grow new connections and new brain cells. So physical exercise, you know, it really is uh, an absolute all-rounder in terms of brain health. On top of that, um, you know, poor sleep and poorly managed chronic stress Mm. are both not good for your brain and physical exercise is a great way to um, manage stress. And it's also a great way to improve your sleep. So, yeah, people are often surprised uh, when I do say to them, look, uh, physical exercise is one of the best things that you can do for your brain. Mm. Um, Can you explain the role of nutrition and diet in brain health? And I'm thinking in terms of we hear all we we hear a lot about superfoods. Yeah. Right. Um, And maybe can can you give me an example of one, perhaps, is this is this something that needs to be debunked or can can we identify, say, one or two foods that are more impactful for brain health? Um, I write about this a lot, actually, in my second book. Um, I write about diet and nutrition. Um, To be honest, I'm not a fan of the whole idea of superfoods or one food. Mm. Um, The way I describe it, I don't know if I describe it this way in Brain Gym, but often in my talks, the way I describe it is um, tend to think more of the nutrients than your brain needs as as an orchestra you know, all those different foods as an orchestra that help your brain work together rather than there being any particular soloist that enhances your brain. Mm. Now, the best evidence is for for a healthy brain is a Mediterranean diet. Now, lots of people will dispute what they mean by a Mediterranean diet. I've had people online sort of say to me, oh, the Greeks eat loads of this and the so-and-so. But the classic Mediterranean diet in this regard is considered to be lots of colorful fruit and vegetables, Mm. oily fish, yes, chicken and meat in uh, poultry and meat in in certain moderation, but, you know, oily fish, uh, nuts, pulses, uh, getting your fat from olive oil rather than from trans fats, etc. Nuts, did I say? But um, essentially, Mm. you can see that that is what a lot of us know to be healthy stuff. Um, And eating that kind of diet is sufficient uh, to provide the nutrients your brain needs. Your body can make some of the nutrients it needs itself, but others it can't. Um, omega-3 is really important for brain health. Um, most of us tend to eat too much omega-6, 
Um, mm. So kind of we need to kind of cut down on the omega-6 and, and build up the omega-3. And the omega-3 is the one that kind of comes from the oily fish, uh, etc. Um, so I would not pick out one specific superfood. Um, mm. That doesn't say that simple single foods aren't kind of good for you, but I prefer to say they're good for you as part of an all-round healthy diet. And not to forget uh, that your brain is a really thirsty organ and it doesn't do well when it is dehydrated. In fact, it can mm. really start to malfunction if it's dehydrated, as can happen quite a lot with older people. They get a kidney or a U infection or a UTI. They start peeing frequently and can't leave the house. And so this happened even with my own mom. So I have personal experience of this. And so they stop drinking fluids. Now, there's an issue as well in that a lot of older people, a lot of people think they're not really sick unless they have a temperature, a high temperature. That's often a gauge that triggers us to go to the doctor. You know, people say, oh, check your temperature. Oh, God, it's high. I should go to the doctor. I'm really sick. Mm. But as we get older, um, our ability to mount a tem temperature diminishes much the same way that we can't run as fast as we used to. And so often older people can have a serious UTI, but have no temperature. And so they don't think, they don't make a connection and they really do need to have that UTI treated. And frequently this happens a lot. Mm. Um, they have a UTI, you know, one of the best things you can do for that is drink loads of fluids and go to the toilet all the time to flush it out of your system. But they stop drinking the fluids because the going to the toilet all the time is interfering with their quality of life. So they end up hyper dehydrating their brain. The cytokines in the brain uh, then cause damage and they cause delirium, very severe delirium. They end up in hospital. The delirium then, if they have had any sort of underlying cognitive issue you know maybe early stages of mild cognitive impairment that then becomes accelerated mm. and you know what can end up happening is a trajectory where they end up developing dementia much sooner than they otherwise would so it's something that's really important for all of us anyway to to keep our brains hydrated to, to drink plenty of water and um, other fluids except yeah. alcohol <laughs> yeah which is for our particular in our particular culture can be can be can be troublesome um, yeah, yeah. And you know what? I'm human. I drink alcohol. Um, but I think the main point is that people understand the risks associated with it. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, you're making an informed decision. I think it would be very unfair for people to continue drinking alcohol and not realize that it's one of the big risk factors for developing dementia. So uh, I think it's only fair that people are informed. I also think for a developing teen brain, um, uh, we need to, we tend to see it as a rite of passage for teenage years in, in Ireland. Mm. Uh, I would have engaged just as a lot of teens my generation did in alcohol and dabbled probably in drugs as well. Um, and that's way before I knew that a teenage brain is completely different to an adult brain and their response to alcohol and drugs is completely different mm. uh, to an adult brain, making them very vulnerable to addiction. Um, I want to, you, you touched on something there. There's a fantastic card and a fascinating card in the book about stress and chronic stress, um, where you talk about reflexive versus reflective thinking. And yeah. you say, when we become chronically stressed, our reflexive brain inappropriately overrides our reflective brain, and we begin to see threat where there is none. Now, that sounds to me like we're building in some kind of trauma response or PTSD. 
um, if and and can you can you expand on that? You also say that stress can harm the CNS, the central nervous system, as well, which is deeply concerning. Well, the brain is part. Yeah, yeah. So look, I, I I do want to start by saying there's nothing wrong with stress per se. The stress response evolved because it serves a purpose. Mm. Uh, the issue is when it becomes poorly managed and chronic, mm. or when you actually have the reverse, which is insufficient stress. So just to explain why and when stress is good, um, uh, and I'm talking about the stress response. Unfortunately, the word stress is used to uh, describe the feeling, the thing that stresses you, and the stress response. So it kind of gets confusing to talk about it. So I'm mm -hmm. talking about the physiological stress response which releases cortisol and, and adrenaline. And obviously there's the first instance, you know, well, it can help you fight or flee, whatever in that moment, but it also helps you rise to the challenges and cope with novelty and learning the things that I'm saying are good for your brain in terms of har harnessing neuroplasticity. Mm. So, you know, stress helps us to attain our goals. You know, uh, if you didn't go on that first date, which is very stressful, you may never find the love of your life. If you don't apply for that job interview, which is stressful, you don't progress. Do you know what I mean? And mm. it, but the thing is, it's, 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 it's very individual. So it's about finding your own stress sweet spot, you know, and, and it is very important to just keep pushing yourself beyond your comfort zone, because in doing that, you build resilience. It's the adaptability. So as you gradually do it, the thing is to do it in sort of a healthful way. Now, you're, you were referring then to maladaptive, you know, responses to stress. That's really important also in childhood, uh, you know, um, going right back to being a baby, you know, attachment styles, etc. If a baby wasn't attended to quickly or properly, they may develop, develop uh a maladaptive stress response. In other words, they may become hyper-stressed too soon um, or not stressed at all when they should be. So mm. it's kind of maladaptive. So basically the way it works in a normal instance is the information from your environment um, and actually also internal information, you know, feelings in your stomach or whatever, but let's just take the external environment because it just makes for the easiest illustration. So you hear a loud noise, you're walking along the street, you hear a loud noise and um, the information about that noise, that signal goes to your amygdala, which is an unconscious part of your brain that handles fear and emotions. Now, that information goes to your amygdala via two routes. One route is very fast, unconscious, immediate and reflexive. Mm. So comes in noise, jump, <laughs> you know, literally jump out of the way or cower down or, or whatever. You, you have no thought involved, literally just happens. Then the second route, the information goes um, to through your frontal lobes, mm. which are the most well-connected part of your brain and involved in um, Oh, so many activities, what we call that sort of higher order activities um, and controlling our behavior and our impulses and planning and decisions and or, or organization, et cetera. But the point about them is they're so well connected that when that information comes in, they have access to all the other information, the context, because mm. really that's what's key here is the context. You know, well, hold on. What is the context of that noise? And if that context of that noise is, ah, it was a car backfiring, right? 
your brain has that, that frontal lobes have the capacity to send a message to say, switch off the stress response that was initially activated in the first instance. You can almost feel it going into your fingertips, you know, mm. uh, you know, the stress hormones are released and uh, um, various other things happen, which I'll talk about in a moment. So it can send that message and say, switch it off. Uh, and so the feedback loop is closed and the stress response is switched off and your body goes back into what's called rest and digest mode. Now, or else your brain can look and say, oh, bloody hell, there's a gunman and a shot has just been fired. Right. Let's ramp up the stress response. We shut down things like digestion that are not necessary. The immune response is, 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 is suppressed. Uh, extra oxygen is pumped to your brain and extra, you know, energy and glucose pumped to your muscles so you can fight or flee. And you kind of hear of people, you know, lifting things are moving cars off kids yeah yeah buses off babies you know yeah 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 that kind of thing but uh, i don't know how far that goes but it does definitely happen now what seems to happen with poorly managed chronic stress is that feedback loop gets broken Mm. and the stress response is not switched off so the stress hormones are continually being released and In that instance, what happens is that neuroplasticity that we were talking about becomes suppressed in your frontal lobes. And so to put it very grossly, sort of, that means your frontal lobes start to shrink in Mm. essence. Mm. And uh, unfortunately, neuroplasticity then is enhanced in your amygdala. And so your amygdala becomes stronger. And Mm. so what happens is instead of your frontal lobes overriding your amygdala, the reverse starts to occur. Your your amygdala starts to override, and you, you know your your the second slow response is reflective. It's conscious. Uh, it's slow. It's thinking, and when that's pushed out of the way, everything becomes uh, and you know an immediate unconscious, unthinking, reflexive, emotional response. And when your your brain is literally on high alert, mm. so you know, um, you know, if if someone makes a loud, say say you're watching a movie. And it's a scary movie and you're like, you know, that's kind of a form of stress release, but it's kind of an exciting form of it, you know, and you're watching the movie and you go there and then someone comes in and bangs the door and you go, oh, Mm. you know, like you're, you hyper respond to things. So I suppose that's kind of a simple way to explain what happens is, you know, you're on this high, high alert um, all the time and you can't think clearly. Um, and and so brain fog sort of enters the equation an inability to focus and concentrate and think clearly an inability to solve problems um, irritability they all then can have a knock-on effect on your job and on your relationships causing more stress mm-hmm. and then there's this inextricable relationship between sleep and stress because you need to go into a deep sleep uh, for certain chemicals to be released that actually uh uh, dissipate cortisol so if, if you're stressed your b- brain is going round and round your thinking is you know like you're, you're having trouble sleeping you're not actually even clearing the cortisol so it's this whole feedback loop you know the less re- sleep you get the more stressed you become the more stressed you become the less sleep you get and uh, it just really has a knock-on effect so um it's cre- really really critical for us to learn how to manage 
um, our stress. And of course, as I, I did mention, you know, too little stress is not good because mm. your brain can't afford to waste um, precious resources on brain cells that aren't being used. And so um, it will pick them off, prune them out. And so your brain will shrink um, as a regard. So, so yeah, it's important to make sure um, you have enough stress and that's very personal, you know. And there's a kind of, an, pardon me, another a side topic, a relational topic here about that you bring up in the brain gym and you talk about control in our emotional states. Okay. Right. And I found remind, this. Remind me what I said. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the feeling of autonomy um, and the lack of control. I was thinking about this in terms of the work that we do and the kind of hierarchies that we exist within in society. The less and less control a person has, say, for example, in, in their job or their work that they do, that, that lack of feeling of control can affect somebody's emotional state. Um, and I thought it was... Yeah. 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 You thought it was... I thought it was very, very important for people to understand both the reflexive thinking yeah. and the lack of control, right? So... And I, I felt that there is some kind of relational thing there. And I, I was thinking about it in terms of the work that we do on a day-to-day -day basis. We all encounter people who can be very reflexive. And yeah. you've just given us really the, the scientific, neuroscientific understanding of this person might actually have experienced developmental stress or it, this yeah. may have been ingrained over time. And I, I think that's very interesting. And I think also what's very interesting, if we can work on the reflective part yeah if we can yeah. do that um and, but... and the, the control piece you raised is important uh, i mean actually we the sort of psychological term is about where you place your locus of control and again mm. it's using an unnecessarily kind of complex complex or rare word i i because that's i in a way what i try to specialize in is just let's talk about this in plain english you know and and make it as understandable as possible as possible but we all have sort of have tendencies towards certain um behaviors or whatever so some people have a tendency to put control uh in the power of others you know what how they perceive control um they sort of say well you know that every pretty much most things are beyond their control they believe that things happen to them mm -hmm. uh, yeah. and and people who uh, attribute uh control to others or to things like luck or fate or mm -hmm. chance um they're actually much more prone to anxiety because I do think that's an interesting thing. I mean, my dad uh, lived with severe anxiety and I, I remember talking to him and I'm saying, ah, that's the first time he said it's ever made sense because tend, people tend to think anxiety is about worrying unnecessarily. Mm. And, and, and that can happen. But in a lot of instances, anxiety is about feeling you have no control. Uh, and that's a scary feeling, you know, um, that you can can't control things happening. Um, uh, and and, and uh, an example where I say personally say would get anxious is, and I'll, I'm sure a lot of people would, um, kind of have experienced this is, you know, if somebody hasn't come home 
and we nowadays have phones and you keep ringing their phone and it's ringing out mm. you know your anxiety builds oh my god oh my god why aren't they answering the phone and it's it, it, it's the control you can't get to them you can't speak to them to check that they're okay you know um but uh yeah then people who place control within themselves and you can kind of call that responsibility in a way mm. they those people feel they're in the driving seat um, and they they feel responsible. They, they, you know, obviously there's things in the world happen that we have absolutely no control over. But a lot of the things, it's about how we perceive the event and whether, you know, we can do something about it or whether we, uh, something we did impacted or led to that Um that particular situation but the, the point really is that people who believe they are in control and in the driving seat actually tend to be happier and less stressed and i suppose in a way they're somewhat related to optimism and pessimism um, and of course we're not we're not talking about extremes in these instances you know uh, we're talking more about sort of tendencies yeah the the stoic philosophers marcus aurelius touched upon this in meditations um this feeling of taking ownership and taking control for your life um controlling what you can and dispensing with what you can't um they all talk about it and stoicism is a big is a big thing nowadays in in in, in philosophy um another couple of really fascinating things that that emerged in in the brain gym one of them was misconceptions about brain health and cognitive enhancements and you talk about left brain versus right brain thinking right and you you kind of we kind of okay well let, let's dispense with that as well can, can you expand on that uh no hang on tell me what the first bit was uh i um, talked mi about misconceptions myths. yeah myths and debunking myths and misconceptions um in terms of our current scientific understanding um, you talk about this idea that we've always everybody thinks that we have a left brain and a right brain. Uh, yeah. The left brain is mathematical and reasoning, and the and the right brain is emotional and creative. And mm -hmm. you argue that and 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 say, okay, listen, let's just dispense with that. Essentially, yeah, 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 yes, it's sort of essentially, and it's not just me arguing that. You know, yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of uh, the neuroscience. It's it, it's that you know, most complex brain processes involve many parts of the brain working together um and and that also means parts of the brain that are conscious and parts of the brain that are unconscious um and there's a this interact interaction and it tends to be when you engage in activity you know there's networks of ac activation and i'm mm. sure you may have heard the term you know um uh you know cells that wire together fire together you know and that's kind of our path that's what leads to our patterns of behavior you know more the more you engage in a particular activity the stronger that network becomes so that when an opportunity or a choice arises that stronger one is going to be your more lightly uh response you have a negativity bias uh we tend to notice things that are negative in the world around us because the primary function of our brain is to keep us alive and safe uh, and so something that's a potential threat uh, is more important to notice that's than from a survival perspective than something uh, that may be an opportunity. Um, and so I, I, I think 
we have to be aware of that and uh, let our brain know of other things that are salient and relevant to us. Um, otherwise, we can start to just sort of see the negatives in the world. Um, when it comes to creativity, which I suppose is what most people are kind of talking about when they're they're talking about the left brain or right brain. I think it's funny anyway as well, you know, because I mean, most most activities require some level of creativity or innovation or thinking outside the uh, the box, you know, mathematics, all those kind of things as well, uh, an ability to 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 kind of be open and creative, but the. Creativity itself, the default mode network is really uh, the network of relevance um, and it becomes active uh, when we daydream, when we're not particularly, I suppose daydream is one word, or it, when our brain is just idling like a car idling, you know, we're, when we're not specifically engaged in an activity, uh, the 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 electrical activity in the brain changes completely and goes to this default mode network. And it seems to be that in a way that's where creativity and insight lies. We put an awful lot of, we give an awful lot of credit to our thinking brain um, for solving problems. But actually I think we should, uh, we should, use our unconscious brains uh, more in that uh, our conscious brain, our neocortex, uh, our thinking brain is only the tip of the iceberg in terms of the knowledge and experience we have. Other areas of your brain unconscious to you, um, they have access to all your sort of life experience and knowledge. So if you give relevant information to your brain about a problem you're trying to solve or uh you know something that you'd like to write or come up with uh once your brain has an idea what it is you're looking for then you know uh take a rest by sleeping or do something else or just let your brain idle and it can figure out an awful lot of uh the solutions and come up with lots of ideas uh, i mean if i was to talk about creativity i'd talk much more about the default mode network as being uh, and that's a diffuse network and it, it's really just about a group of neurons firing together you do note that people who practice mindfulness have more gray matter in their hippocampus and that has been observed yes um so mindfulness everybody uh you heard it here not first but you heard it here um, <laughs> but i would also clarify and i know i you, you have another question but i would always clarify that mindfulness uh does not just mean meditation it mm. means living in a more mindful way focusing on what you're doing while you're doing it um and that's something that you can do while you're making the dinner do you know what i mean it doesn't mm. have to be oh i must set aside a time to do this it is and you can't be mindful all the time your brain needs habits and um, because it you know can't use up resources all the time being mindful you'd be exhausted so it's just about kind of getting that balance. So actually focusing on making the dinner while you're making it rather than also trying to watch a TV program or mm -hmm. something like that so that you can engage your senses and notice what the carrot looks like or the sound of the knife when you cut it and those kind of it can be as simple as that. And you do also note that edu education, in fact, is the most consistently successful cognitive enhancer. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that was that was really fascinating, very important. Okay, so before we go, last question. Um, are there any emerging technologies in, in the space in neuroscience that show promise in enhancing brain function? Anything that you're really interested in or excited by that's coming down the track, if you like? Yeah, I'm not really. Um, I'm so I suppose to be fair, I'm my interest is in sort of that the power lies within. Uh, you know, within your brain. And so I'm interested in how we can enhance it uh, without spending a penny, you know, by just doing our thing, you you, you know, doing the things that are good for it. Um, I think there are sort of, um, you know, brain training games and apps and stuff like that. Uh, And the group of scientists got together and had a look at them. And there's no evidence to say that they, that they work in a way that mm. is uh, ecologically valid by that meaning, you know, there's no transferable skills. It's like, you know, if, if you like doing Sudoku and if you like doing crosswords and they make you happy, do them. That's good. They're not going to enhance your brain function unless, unless you keep upping the game, doing harder and harder or more complex ones, or you put time limits on you because it's the challenge, the novelty, the learning that gives you that benefit. Um, I suppose, you know, it's a bit like other technologies. You know, I'm not hugely aware of, of, of kind of what's going on in that space, but like the likes of, um, you know, my calendar on my phone, the memory devices, the internet, they have made huge differences to how we function when they're used appropriately. Generally in moder- moderation is always kind of a good tool. But like, me being able to store stuff you know online that i can access easily frees my brain to be creative and do other stuff i just have to remember where the thing is rather than you know what it is so once i can source the information uh, and i suppose the only thing i do see coming down the line that there's a lot of talk around is ai artificial intelligence i mean it'll never replicate the human brain it certainly can access information sort of quicker than we can mm. but what it does with that information you know uh is not like what we do with that information um but i think again if used appropriately uh it can enhance i'm not saying it can enhance cognitive brain function but it can perhaps in much the same way that memory devices can free up space and google for example freed up huge time i mean i can't imagine how people wrote books uh you know with they would have to go to a library and find all those academic papers Mm. and read them and mark them i can do it on an internet i can log in and i can access the paper i want i can read it i can highlight it i can cut and paste it like that has transformed what i can do cognitively um and it may seem indirect and and i kind of think that things coming down the line like ai where you can access or ask for pieces of knowledge or whatever will have a similar similar but i will answer you know put my hands up and saying that's probably a very naive naive answer in that i am not up to speed with those kind of technological things because yeah in a way they they don't interest me until i'm and what does interest me about them is um 
ensuring that they are not just developed and made available freely without uh, consideration of both intended and unintended consequences. And we've seen the consequences of the likes of the internet. You know, just because we can doesn't mean we should. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, kids' toys have to be tested to make standards. All our medications have to go through clinical trials. Nothing in recent years has had as profound an impact on our lives uh, uh, like the internet and social media and in ways that will change our brains. So where where that kind of stuff interests me is in terms of we need to put some sort of guardrails. Yeah, we need some sort of guardrails, you know, um, because to me, it's the equivalent of the atomic bomb, you know, splitting the atom was not, you know, um, and, and this is a bit the same, you know, people can do stuff. Oh, we can do this, this, this and this. But, you know, there'll always be somewhere there and go, oh, and now we can do this thing, um, mm. which impacts. And those people who develop social media, all those things, they know how the human brain works inside out. And that's what they're harnessing, you know, to play on our how we function and our weaknesses. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, and the money motivation is a concern as well. Um, the financial prerogative. Oh, it's always about financial for them, yeah. which I think is probably one of the reasons I try to stick to lifestyle, personal stuff you can do that. It's just, you know, mm. you can do this. You don't have to be rich to, to do this. Although we could get into arguments about quality food, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think the likes of I go to Aldi, you know, and then there's always the, vegetables for you know 60 mm. cent or, or whatever which is a hell of a lot cheaper than a packet of biscuits you, you, you know um but education is a is a is kind of a factor there for people as well to understand fantastic nutrition. thank you so much sabina um where can people find you you're on you have your own podcast i have a podcast called super brain i have i am on instagram and twitter not a lot at the moment because i've been writing another book um and probably if they want to go to superbrain.ie mm. down at the bottom of the page there's loads of free resources they can find um animations that i've made that explain some of these things uh and uh yeah other free resources there fantastic thank you dr Sabrina brennan thank you so much mm-hmm.